Well, this series, what we've been talking about, we've been talking about the church deployed, that the church is not a building, but we are the church, and we deploy as the church. Wherever we go, that's where the church is. And so the question that we're going to spend time today wrestling with or trying to answer is this, what does it take to be used by God? What does it take? Now, if you're not a Christ follower today, that question might seem really odd, because we have a negative connotation with being used, don't we? That why would you want to be used by anyone, especially God? And you just got to know something about us Christians, that we believe that God can do amazing things through us, but that it's not of us. That God actually does something inside of us to enable us to be used by him in the world and make a difference. And so we're going to spend time looking at scripture and answering this question. Like I said, we're going to jump in and follow a story with the the early church. Let me just give you some, some background, some context. Jesus has already come. He's done his miracles, he's preached to thousands, and he's been wrongly accused, arrested, condemned, and murdered. But spoiler alert, he doesn't stay dead. God raises him from the dead, he comes back and he tells his disciples, hey, just so you know, I'm not gonna stay around for a long time. I'm leaving. And he says, it's actually better that I leave so that someone, the Holy Spirit, can come and be with you. And he says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And so we find in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit descends on the early church and the church explodes. And the disciples who are left, who Jesus has empowered, quickly promote seven people to step up into church leadership to help them carry the weight of ministry. And in Acts 8, we're going to meet two of them. One of them has just been stoned, has just been killed, murdered. And the other one, Philip, is running from the same fate. So here it is, Acts 8, verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 4 and 5. It says this, And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. You see, the church is doing great until the persecution starts. And this guy named Saul, who who we find out later in Acts, God radically changes his life. He goes, ends up preaching all across the known world, ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. But before God does that, Saul is actually up in arms leading this manhunt for Christians, and so the church scatters. And you would think that as they go, they would keep a low profile, they would keep their heads down and their mouths shut, but they don't. In every place that they go, with every person, at every rest stop, at every gas station, every restaurant, every hotel, they tell people about the good news of Jesus, and the message about Jesus starts to spread. Now, I want you to take note of where Philip goes. He goes to Samaria, and Samaria isn't a place that Philip probably would want to have gone. Philip probably did not have a timeshare in Samaria, okay? Can I say it that way? That if he was a good Jew, that he actually never would have set foot in, in Samaria. But, this, but he goes there probably for one reason and one reason only, and that's that no one will follow him. That he's going to a place where he can be left alone, where he can hide. 
It's likely that he had never been there or wanted to go there, which is why he fled there. Why does that matter? Because it's easy for us to read this now and say, oh, of course Philip went to Samaria, and of course he proclaimed the word as he went. He's Philip. As if Philip had something superhuman in him or that he was special, but this wasn't a great day for Philip. He had just watched his friend be stoned to death. Now he's on the run for his own life. He ends up in a place that he doesn't want to be, probably preaching to people a couple weeks ago he didn't like, and that is where God used him. Because Philip was willing to do something that you and I just, we need to know. If we want to be used by God, here's the first thing. If you want to, what does it take to be used by God? You don't limit God to some places. Now that might be easy for us to understand and, act, and agree with, but have, have we actually tried it? To be available for God to use wherever we go, that's no small thing. But Philip understood we don't limit God to some places. Can I say it this way, church? Philip's place didn't dictate Philip's purpose. That Philip was, really, was willing to testify about God's goodness on his good days and on his bad days, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. Wherever he went, he was willing for God to use him. Part of being used by God is that you recognize God isn't limited to a place, that he goes with us and wants to use us wherever we go. We'll pick back up in verse 26 of chapter eight. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go to towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, and then the spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join him. Philip, let me break it down for you. Philip is still on the run, but while he's running, he's listening. And as he leaves Samaria, he goes to a wilderness road. That word literally means desert. So he goes from somewhere where no one would follow him to a place where no one should be. He's still running. He probably thinks that he's on his way to Gaza, which is another great place to hide, a traditional enemy of Israel, but he doesn't even get there. He meets someone along the way. And the author, we don't get a name for the Ethiopian eunuch, but the author gives us two descriptors that he really wants us to know about this man. One was where he came from, his home country. The second was his physical condition. He came from Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is 2,000, over 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem, which is a long way by horse and buggy. And so this, what the author wants us to know is that even though this this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, isn't a Jew, that he has gone out of his way, thousands of miles out of his way, to come and to worship because he is searching for God. That's the first thing. The other thing is his physical condition, that he is a eunuch, most likely a castrated slave. Now, if you do not know what eunuch means, if you do not know what castrated means, I am not gonna tell you, okay? Look it up later. Ask your parents as they're taking a bite of food, whatever you want to do, but just probably know this wasn't something that he wanted to have happen to him. This was probably something that was forced on him as a slave, and, and this was really common in the ancient world because kings and queens in that day wanted to solidify their hierarchy. They didn't want anyone to come and usurp the throne, and so there was a lot of danger 
with someone else coming and establishing their lineage. But if you took someone like a eunuch, they would promote them to incredibly high places of power because they were deemed to be more trustworthy for, for not establishing their own lineage or establishing their own dynasty. And so here we find this man. The only problem is that the same thing that has allowed him to be promoted where he's from is the same thing that has kept him from the people of God. Because the Jewish people had laws against his physical condition from joining their assembly. And so, and so here we find ourselves on a desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip is on the run, going to another place he probably doesn't want to go to, encountering a man who has gone so far out of his way to try to find God. And he's still in some way left out. And what does God say to Philip? He says, you see that chariot? Go over and meet them. You see, here's what Philip gets. First is that we don't limit God to places. Here's the second thing we find. If you want to be used by God, you don't limit God to some people. And this is where it gets a little sticky, so just, just go here with me, church, okay? Sometimes the people who we think God will only call us to are the people who we already like. Sometimes the people who we think that God will call us to are the people we already get along with, that we already feel comfortable around, the people we wouldn't mind having in our home, the people we wouldn't mind having our kids play with their kids. And if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is that we will limit what God wants to do through us to some people. Turn to your neighbor and say, some people. There are some kind of people in the world today. If we're not careful what we'll do is we'll actually limit what God wants to do through us to some people. But what if, what if the people that God is calling you to bless are the people that you're unwilling to get to know? Because I don't think Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch had a lot in common. Philip was on the run for his life and the Ethiopian eunuch was royalty. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So Philip goes up to this fancy chariot and he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah. Because back in those days, imagine your Bible if there was no spaces in between words and no punctuation. That's, that's probably the scroll that he was reading. And so they had to read it aloud just to understand it. And as soon as Philip hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading aloud the, aloud the scroll, he knows, he knows what he needs to do. And so he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And I love what the Ethiopian eunuch says. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so Philip jumps up into the chariot and, and the passage that he's reading is like sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shear so he does not open his mouth. And the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, he says, who is the author talking about? Himself or someone else? And the scripture says as, that starting with that scripture, Philip begins to tell the Ethiopian eunuch about the good news of Jesus Christ. Imagine if God spoke to you the way that he spoke to Philip that day. I'm not talking about something that you plan for, some strategy, something that you're working for, but as you're driving, as you're walking down the grocery aisle, as you're at dinner, what if God spoke to you in that way where he said, hey, you see that person? Go over and join them. Notice that God did not give Philip the words to say. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that if God wanted Philip to do something, that he would make it as easy as possible? But he doesn't. 
Philip doesn't ask for a plan. He just responds with the only thing that he has, which is his own obedience. When God gives us direction, we often ask for the rest of the plan, but he just asks for our obedience. You know, in a, in a couple of weeks, we'll hit our two-year mark at All Shores, which is just crazy to say that, that that time has flown. But I can go back to when we were in Indianapolis a couple of years ago, wanting to move up to Michigan like it was yesterday. And I remember we had um, two girls at that point, the, our middle child, Naomi, she was just two or three months And I remember asking God over and over, God, if this is really from you, we didn't know where we were supposed to go or what we were supposed to do. We just knew that we were supposed to leave what we knew for something else that God had for us. And I remember asking God, God, if this is really from you, will you just make it so clear? Like, will you just lay out the yellow brick road? Like, just lay out the yellow brick road and then we'll follow it. And I remember what he said to me. He said, Evan, I will give you one brick at a time. And sure enough, every week and a half, every two weeks, we just have one little thing, one little brick, just to know that we weren't going in the wrong direction, just to know that we were still doing the right thing. It was almost as if God was saying, Evan, you don't need to know the whole plan. You just need to respond to my direction with your your obedience. Philip did not know what to say, but he trusted that God would help him figure it out as he went. We'll pick up for the last time in verse 36. It says this. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. What could God do in the life of someone that you just met on the other side of your yes? What could God do? What could God do in the life of someone that you just met on the other side of your yes? If he could tap into all of your experiences, every place that you go, if he could... If, if no one was off limits, if every face he wanted, he, that your God antenna was up with everyone that you met. I love how this story ends. Because as we started out our time together, what was Philip looking for? Escape, right? From persecution. What a better place than Ethiopia. No one's going to come looking for him in Ethiopia. And I'm pretty sure he just nailed the interview. I'm pretty sure the the keeper of um, the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia can find an extra room for Philip. He can go preach to an entire nation if he wants to, but he doesn't do that. God's not interested in strategy from our perspective. He has his own plan. Scripture says that Philip was supernaturally snatched going south from Jerusalem to Gaza, and now the scripture puts him somewhere north of where he is because the only reason that he was on that road was not to get to Gaza or to get to Ethiopia. It was just for that one person. Just that one person that God wanted him to collide with. Philip moves on, the eunuch moves on, rejoicing at what God has done, not Philip. Here's the last thing we pick pick up from Philip's story. The first is that we don't limit God to a place, or we don't limit God to just some people. The last one is this. How? What does it take? 
to be used by God. You don't ask God for any of the credit. What did Philip get for all of his effort? Truly, the only thing he got was the satisfaction of being used by God. That's it. That's it. No payout, no benefits, no getting anything out of anyone, no donations, no tag on social media, no local news picking up the story, no credit whatsoever, just impact. Church, can I ask you this question? If God gets all the credit and all you get to be a part of is the impact, is that enough? If God gets all the credit and all you get to be is a part of the impact, is that enough? Can I say it this way? When it comes to God and his kingdom, you can usually have credit or impact, but you can't have both. And God wants to use you. You know, the story, remind, the story in scripture reminds me of a story I've heard in our own church recently. This is the Hansons. This is Chris Hansen. I'm pointing to the person, okay? This is Chris Hansen. This is a horse, just so you know. Um, her husband, Jim. This is our oldest, Nora. And Jim and Chris Hansen are horse people, okay? And our, our oldest, Nora, she loves horses. And so last year, the Hansons let us come over and hang out with Maya. Everything in our house is named Maya now because Nora renamed everything. But they, Jim and Chris are horse people, and they've gone to um, horse shows, and they've done horse competitions for years and years and years. And, and so it wasn't that long ago that there was a horse show coming up, and leading up to it, Jim, um, Chris's husband, got a text from a guy named Mike. And Mike had been someone who was going to be at the horse show who they had met years before and built some of a relationship with, and something was going on in Mike's life where he was finally searching for God. And he just, he had some questions. And so he reached out to the only person he knew that had, had a faith in Jesus Christ and was willing to talk about it, and that was Jim. And so he texted me, he says, hey, I just have a lot of questions, can we connect? And so Jim said, sure. Like, when we're at the horse show together, we'll just, we'll walk around and connect. And so that's exactly what they did. And, and Mike just brought a lot of questions, and Jim was just willing to wrestle with the answers with him. And finally, Mike got to a tipping point where Jim said, Mike, are you ready to give all of your worries and your cares to Jesus, to, to start a personal relationship with him? And I love what Mike said, because it reminds me of the passage that we just met. He says, Jim, how can I unless someone guides me? And so Jim just told him about what it would look like to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, what it would look like to have a fresh start. And Mike said, okay. He said, let me think about that. And the next day, Mike came back to Jim, and he said, Jim, I'm ready, and I want to do it right now. And so they went to the back of a horse barn, and Mike kneeled down, and Jim prayed that prayer with him, and Mike committed his life to Christ. And then Mike jumped up, and he's like, Jim, what do I do next? Because that's, that's what it feels like to be, to be drawn towards the love of God that it's not something that you have to do. It's not some expectation. It's connecting with the person who's created you and who loves you and who's not mad or disappointed at you but wants the best for you. So he says, Jim, what do I do next? And Jim said, well, you would get baptized. And he told him what that meant. And Mike said, well, there's a horse trough. Will you baptize me? 
And Jim said, okay, I'll baptize you. And he baptizes Mike. And here's what I love about that story. Here's what I would say all of us are being invited into. Jim did not have all the answers. There's no way. There's no way that Jim had all the answers for the questions that Mike had. But Jim was willing to be a guide. And what is a guide? A guide is just someone who's willing to stick with a person until they get to where they want to go. That's it. And I think every single person in our church can do that, can be a guide, can love someone enough, can be willing enough to to walk along someone until they get to where they want to go. What if God could use the person you already are, going to the places that you already go, connecting with people who he already loves. He's just looking for someone who knows him and will listen to him and will respond to his prompts. Remember our question today, what does it take? What does it take to be used by God? Here's the answer. All it takes is to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and obedient to his prompting. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have any of the experiences that you think you have to have. All you have to have is being open to the voice of the Holy Spirit and obedient, courageous when he prompts you. You might say, Evan, how do I do that? I'm so glad you asked. This is as practical as I can be, okay? The first is this, ask to grow familiar with the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's something that we can ask. There aren't Christians who can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and the rest of us who can't. He wants to speak to all of us and it's something that we can grow in and so ask to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. How do you know it's the Holy Spirit? That is a great question. I don't know what it'll be for you. I, I, I heard someone describe it this way that it's, it's a feeling somewhere between my heart and my belly button that it's right here for me and for me it's a weight that I respond to, that I'm invited to. I don't, I'm not saying that's what it'll be for you. That's what it is for me. But we can, you can grow in your understanding of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second one. Carve out time. See, you and I can increase or dampen the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life. That you can increase or dampen the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so we carve out time to listen. And just to ask that God would speak louder and clearer to us. Last thing is this. Take one step. That's it. Just one step. Going south on that wilderness road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Just one step. That's it. What would God be asking you to do? And here's, can I just encourage you in this? You probably won't do it right the first time. You have my permission. Do it anyways. Respond to what you think God is asking you to do. And one more qualifier. I think if I had to guess what the Holy Spirit will ask you to do, it probably won't be something easy or in your comfort zone. Because why would the Holy Spirit need to prompt you for something you can do on your own? The Holy Spirit is not Siri. Like Siri, remind me to take the trash out at 6 p.m. The Holy Spirit is going to push you outside of where you're outside of where you're comfortable so that he can use you to make a difference in the world around you. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, but he doesn't need to comfort us if we're already comfortable, amen? Well, we carve out time 
at the end of our service, every time, every time we hear God's word, we're invited to respond. And so I just want to give you the space to do that. I'm gonna pray for us with every head bow and eyes closed. Let it, let's go to God. God, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for every single person under the sound of my voice. I know that you love them, that you wanna communicate as clearly as you can how you are for them. You're not against them. You're not mad at them. You're not angry. You're not disappointed. You love them. You know what they're walking through. You wanna help them. And God, I just pray that you would increase the volume of the Holy Spirit in their life. That some of us are so busy, running so fast, we're so tired that it's impossible to hear your still small voice. And so I pray that you would help us to move towards you, to slow down, to carve out time, to listen, to ask, to grow more and more familiar with your voice and that you would speak because you always want to. God, I also pray for people in the room who or watching online who don't have a, a relationship with you, who've never had that moment that the Ethiopian eunuch had or that Mike had where someone was there to guide them and yet they hear you prompting them. They hear you calling to them and they've been searching for something. Maybe they didn't even know what it was, but today they feel a sense that they've found it, that they found you. And if that's you today, I just wanna lead you in a prayer and you can pray it in your own words. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna ask um, you to stand or come to the front. I just want you to have a moment where you can draw a line in the sand and say, this was my moment. This is where I responded. And so just pray this prayer after me in your own words. Say, say Heavenly Father, I hear you calling to me. I know that you're speaking to me. I wanna respond to the call that you have on my life. I'm so sorry for going my own way and having to have it in my own timeline. But I want what you have. I want what you have set aside to give me, which is your salvation, a new life, an abundant life. And so I say yes to that invitation. Wash me clean from my sin, from my wrongdoing, and start me fresh with you. Holy Spirit, fill me. And would you speak to me? Would you direct me and guide me as I go? We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and everybody said, amen, amen and amen.